Previously on Mafia. Charles Lucky Luciano had been arrested, and Frank Costello took over the family. Frank Costello was called the Prime Minister because that title was given to him by the media, by the newspapers and television and what have you. And the reason for that is that they likened him to our English ancestry in this country, where the famous Prime Minister of all was Winston Churchill, and they made Frank Costello the American Winston Churchill in the underworld. But Vito Genovese wanted his job and was waiting for him to make a mistake. Uh, what happened is when he was summoned before the Kefauver Committee uh, of the United States Senate, he assumed that he could get through the hearing successfully, partly because he had political friends, partly because he was a charming guy, and he was essentially saying, I'm just a gambler. I'm just a gambler. He kind of fooled himself toward the end. And unknown to both of them, Costello's mistake would be not only his own downfall, but the beginning of the downfall of the entire La Cosa Nostra. This is Mafia. Like Costello, Genovese got his start in crime under the guidance of Lucky Luciano. But while Costello made a name for himself in floating casinos and one-armed bandits, Genovese got into a much more lucrative business, drugs. Selwyn Rabb is the author of Five Families. And he was one of the people who introduced, really into the inner cities, heroin for the first time on a massive scale. It made millions for him, it made millions for a lot of mafiosi. But the point very simply, he deserved that spot in hell for doing that. He ruined and wrecked many neighborhoods throughout America, many major cities, because of the narcotics plague. Genovese always thought that narcotics was a good deal for the mob. Uh, Costello was a little more apprehensive. One of the reasons he knew that at that time, back especially in the 50s uh, and in the 40s, the only long sentences anybody could get uh, that the, mafia, the kind of um, crimes that the Mafia was involved in would be narcotics. The mob as a whole was not interested in drug running, mostly because it drew too much attention from law enforcement. Former NYPD officer Joe Coffey. It brought heat. Drugs brought heat. And what I mean by heat is that if you dealt drugs and you got backed and you're facing a lot of time in jail, you're going to roll, you're going to become a rat. So they felt that if they kept their hand out of drugs, they would be able to avoid that. But it brought Genovese his reputation and helped him to survive abroad. Not long after Luciano was arrested, Vito Genovese also got in trouble. He was Luciano's underboss and next in line to take over the family. But now, a witness had come forward to convict him of a murder that happened four years ago. Genovese fled to Italy to avoid the murder charge. It was said he had $750,000 in his trunk, and he was going to need it. The new leader of Italy was Benito Mussolini, the head of the National Fascist Party, and he was fiercely against the Sicilian Mafia. Thomas Repetto is the author of American Mafia. He fled to avoid a murder rap. Uh, and there he had to live under the protection of Mussolini. But of course, Mussolini was known for shooting mafiosos. And so he could never really relax. 
But Genovese would soon discover that he was open to offers. And he was a pretty crafty guy, Genovese. Turned out he worked both for the Axis and for the Allies. Now, it took a little uh, engineering, but he pulled it off. He was very close. He, he uh, cottoned up uh, to Benito Mussolini by providing money, providing uh, donations to fascist buildings, and he even managed to pull off a hit for Mussolini in New York. There was an uh, anarchist newspaper run in New York, which was a, had been a persistent and critic of Mussolini. And Mussolini, for some reason, wanted to get rid of the ed editor of that newspaper. How did he arrange the hit? He went to uh, Don Vito Genovese, who got word to his killers in New York, and they, they murdered the editor. So he had all these favors coming from uh, Mussolini, and he was doing quite well. As a reward for Genovese's donations and services, Mussolini gave him the Order of Saints Maurice and Lazarus, similar to a knighthood. But it wasn't long before Mussolini also became a target. The Allied forces were winning World War II. To stay safe, Genovese would have to try and gain the trust of America once again. He quickly switched sides and became an interpreter for the American forces and advisor to the U.S. military government. Unfortunately, at that time, for, uh, oh, it seemed unfortunate for uh, Vito Genovese, the Allies landed in Italy and Mussolini was gone. In fact, uh, he lost his life in the war. So what did Vito do? He turned to black marketeering and working, because he spoke English, he began working with the Allied troops, the American troops in Naples. And they thought he was doing them a favor. What he was really doing, he was running a black marketeering scheme. He was stealing uh, supplies from army bases by corrupting army, uh, army officers and selling it on the black market in Italy. But despite his help to the government in Sicily, Genovese was still wanted for murder. Genovese was brought back to the States to stand trial, but he quickly had the only witness killed. Without the testimony, he was a free man, but the mafia position he had left behind was filled in his absence. The Luciano family was now headed by Frank Costello. Joe Coffey said that Genovese wasted no time in trying to kill Costello but he couldn't just shoot him. Well, they were 180 degrees separated. Genovese and Costello, they just, uh, Costello hated him. Genovese hated Costello. I mean, that's, that wasn't new. Everybody knew it at the time. I was a little kid when that was going on, but my father, who was involved in that stuff, used to fill me in on it. You cannot hit anybody in a mob, particularly a boss, unless you get the okay of the whole commission. And I understand this to be true, that Genovese many, many times tried to get the okay of the commission to kill Costello. With Costello's position on the newly made Mafia commission, he couldn't be killed without permission. But their feelings about Costello changed after the 1951 Kefauver hearings. Costello had testified before the hearings, thinking he would make the mob look good, but he had failed and he had implicated himself with the IRS. And the uh, IRS went after him in the Justice Department. Now that he was in the spotlight, they had to do something. So they got him on tax evasion, tax cases, 
which is the easiest thing to do. If you want to get a criminal in America, get him on taxes. And they got him, and he was actually had short sentences. So it was the beginning of the end uh, by appearing before the Cafalba Committee and thinking he was smart enough that he could handle senators and handle the uh, attorneys that were, the counsels that were going to whipsaw him. And they did. So he was a big loser. Genovese set his sights on killing one of Costello's most trusted allies, Willie Moretti, a former hitman. It was not hard to convince the commission. Well, the, the, Moretti was, uh, had pretty much lost his mental equilibrium at that particular time. And he, he made a fool out of himself, too, in front of the Kefauver committee. And he was saying a lot of indiscreet things. Some people saw his murder as, a, as an act of mercy. Moretti had been suffering from advanced syphilis, which was spreading to his brain. He was already in hot water for his own performance at the Kefauver hearings due to the illness. And so when Genovese brought the idea to the commission of an open hit, they took him up on it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Costello was unable to make a move back at Genovese. He was in and out of jail over the next six years. When he came out on bail in March 1957, it was Genovese who decided to make a final strike. His ace in the hole was a mentee by the name of Vincent the Chin Giganti, a former boxer. Vito Genovese put the contract down on Frank Costello. And it was based primarily in jealousy. He had to get rid of him. He was a competitor. At least Genovese perceived him to be a competitor. Costello never did. Now, what he did was he gave the contract to Chin Giganti, Vincent Giganti, who was a former prize fighter, who became Genovese's chauffeur. He drove Genovese everywhere. He was a real thug, tough guy. I mean, Kenya at the drop of a hat. Uh, he was the, uh, the mirror image of a Genovese. Genovese liked him for that. I mean, he was just a ruthless killer. Uh, he gave him the contract. The commission wouldn't grant Genovese permission to kill one of their own. But Genovese decided to hit Costello anyway. He set about studying Costello's daily routine. But Genovese wasn't the only person tracking Costello. On parole, the former prime minister was under scrutiny of the law as well. Joe Coffey was a New York City detective sergeant tasked with keeping an eye on Costello. Frank Costello and I knew each other pretty well. Not that we were friends, but it was by necessity. I was assigned to follow him. He lived in a place on the west side called the Majestic. It's a house on, it's an apartment house on Central Park West. Now, I used to pick him up there early in the morning. He was an early riser. And every day he would walk to the Waldorf Astoria from, six, I believe it's 69th Street and Central Park West to 71st Street to the Waldorf Astoria, which is 49th Street and Park Avenue. He would walk every day. It was like the Constitutional. And he would go there and he would get a shave and a haircut every day and a manicure three times a week. That's how fastidious he was. Genovese was also able to pick up on Costello's predictable routine. And, Coffey realized, Costello was an especially easy target for a mob boss. It all went back to his very first arrest. 
Yeah, Frank Costello didn't like carrying a gun, uh, as has been pointed out many, many times. He was arrested for carrying a gun one time, and it was uh, very distasteful to him. He felt that he could get along in life and in his business without intimidating people. He could do it by his brain. He was a pretty congenial guy who got along very well with anybody and made sure that he did. And as a result of his mannerisms and his character, he was really brought into the society world of New York City. He was the only one who could do that. And he was uh, very good at it. Basically, he was not a man who used violence regularly or lightly. He didn't use bodyguards for the most part. Other uh, bosses had an army of bodyguards around them. Costello said, if they're going to kill you, that's the first ones they'll bribe. On the evening of May 2nd, 1957, Frank Costello took a cab back to his apartment after a nice dinner with some friends. Now, Costello lived in a very uh, upscale apartment on, that overlooked Central Park. And Costello was so sure of himself, even though he knew Genovese was around, had no bodyguards. He would drive around by himself, go into cabs, meet people, and there was no phalanx of protectors. And he came home one night, uh, walked into his lobby, and he was met by Gigante. Right there in the lobby, Gigante raised his gun and yelled, this is for you, Frank. Costello was covered with blood when he reached the hospital, but he was only wounded. It was believed that Gigante's words had saved Costello. The prime minister turned his head to see who was behind him, so the bullet only grazed his skull. NYPD Detective Joe Coffey says many people believe Gigante had meant to wound him. Now there's some debate on whether Gigante missed him on purpose or he just missed him out of ineptness. I choose the latter. He just missed him. Uh, he meant to kill him. It wasn't a warning shot. But there's a rule in the mob. If you try and you miss, you don't try again. And they didn't try again, okay? And Frank went to the hospital that night, the famous picture of him wearing his fedora with the bandage around him, uh, and he had the wound, and he was out in the hospital the next morning. Um, the whole purpose there was to kill him. It wasn't to wound him. The doorman of the Majestic identified Gigante as Costello's hitman, and Gigante was put on trial for attempted murder. It now came down to Costello. If he confirmed the shooter was Gigante, police would go after him. But like Rothstein before him, Costello refused to say anything, even about his own assassination, and told the jury that he didn't recognize Gigante. Gigante was acquitted and thanked Costello outside of court. The botched hit left Genovese vulnerable and gave Costello back some of the power he lost. Genovese shifted focus and decided his next move was to eliminate one of Costello's most powerful allies, Albert Anastasia. He was called the Lord High Executioner. He was boss of the Brooklyn Waterfronts. He was a key figure in Murder Incorporated. He was a tough, ruthless man, uh, not at all like Costello, who was his, his good friend. And if there had been a move against Costello with Anastasia still alive, there would have been a counterattack by Anastasia. 
Anastasia was a skilled assassin and one of the founders of the Mafia's enforcement arm, Murder, Inc. If Genovese was going to assassinate him, he had to be clever about it. But getting to Anastasia was no simple feat. He lived in a New Jersey mansion guarded by dogs, barbed wire fences, and always traveled with bodyguards. Genovese needed somebody on the inside. He approached Carlo Gambino, then an ambitious Anastasia lieutenant, and convinced him that they would both be better off with Anastasia dead. And Anastasia had recently killed a civilian while on a job, putting him in poor favor with the commission. That was, Anastasia had become a problem. Uh, it was, he was bringing too much heat on because the murder incorporated and the situation that transpired after that with his uh, interference with uh, other mob activities, he had to go. On the morning of October 25th, 1957, at 10.15 a.m., Albert Anastasia walked into a barbershop in Midtown Manhattan. His bodyguards parked the car in an underground garage and then took a walk. Anastasia closed his eyes and relaxed into the barber's chair. Two men in suits, with scarves covering their lower faces, walked up behind him. Genovese sprang into action. He immediately announced that he was the head of the Luciano family, and his followers started a coup against Frank Costello. And Costello knew what it meant. His time was over. His reign was complete. That if he didn't surrender or abdicate, he was, he was going to be assassinated. And he went into early retirement. Costello sent a message to uh, Vito Genovese, Don Vito, it's yours. You're in control. And that's what happened. Costello was already injured and disgraced. Joe Coffey says at this point, he was looking for a way out. Costello wanted out of the mob even before the shooting. Once the shooting occurred, it became easy for him to walk. Because he knew by the rules they couldn't take him again. They couldn't hit him again. And he took his time, and he just, that's when he started to really build his base with the high society element in the city. Costello didn't really want to become the heir apparent. He didn't want to become the boss because he had enough. And that's when Genovese took over. Genovese had finally done it. He was now the boss of the largest mafia family in New York. But he was also in deep trouble. Blinded by ruthless ambition, he had ordered the hits on Anastasia and Costello without the formal go-ahead from the commission. And he was about to get into deeper trouble. In 1957, Genovese requested a meeting of the commission to formalize his role of boss, as well as to explain his recent actions in New York. He also said that all of his followers should attend to support him. It was not a good idea. 1957 was a traumatic year for the American Mafia and especially for the Mafia in New York City. What happened was two really pivotal events. Uh, number one, Don Vito Genovese puts out a contract on Frank Costello. Frank Costello was wounded, retires. Now there's a new boss of a very powerful family, and he, 
Vito Genovese. Also in another family, now known as the Gambino family, there's a big change over there too. The family had been run until that time by Albert Anastasia, and the new leader of that family is Carlo Gambino. The commission was not supposed to call another meeting, another national convention, which would be held every five years, for four more years. But Genovese insisted that the bosses from all the other families and the New York families had to assemble because of these important developments in New York, and he wanted it known that he was the boss of the family, and there's been a major changeover in, with Anastasia replaced by Gambino. So they picked the same place they had met the previous year. There had been a national convention in a small town in upstate New York known as Appalachian. More than 60 senior mafia bosses with their advisors and bodyguards traveled from Cuba, Italy, and from all over the United States to a hilltop estate in Appalachian, New York. It was supposed to be away from the surveillance of the NYPD. It was also the home of mafia boss Joseph Barbara. Appalachian meeting that was held upstate New York was a meeting of mobsters from all over the country. Uh, it had people from every major city in the country. Keep in mind that the mob, as we know it today, and as it was formed in 1931, was 100% controlled by the five families in New York. All the other cities were ancillary that answered to the New York mobsters. It was an enormous gathering. There were over 100 people present, all parked on a small estate. Had anyone been paying attention, the large number of luxury cars in one place would have been suspicious. And someone was paying attention. The local police there noticed something strange. All these out-of-towners and dozens of cars were pulling into one, one, one farmhouse in a re remote area. They made an investigation and sooner or later discovered there was a mafia meeting. Or at least they knew all these Italians, some of them with records, were meeting there. Local trooper Edgar Crosswell had a past encounter with Mafia boss Carmine Galante on his way to Barbara's house. After a background check on Galante and discovering he was a mafiosi, Crosswell had been surveilling the estate ever since. That day in November, Crosswell had grown more suspicious. There were rumors that every room in his town's single hotel had been booked out by one man. After further inquiry, Crosswell found out the big spender was Joseph Barbara, a local, rumored to have mafia connections. He called for backup. State troopers crawled through a stretch of land beside Joseph Barbara's house. Inside was a fleet of luxury cars and richly dressed men. The state troopers closed in, and as they did, the mafia panicked. Some rushed to their cars. Others fled through the woods. Some got away. They ran from the scene. Some heard a raid was on and never arrived. They turned around to their cars and went back. But they got enough of them to show that something big was happening. Uh, and a lot of people who had denied there was such a thing as the mafia or a national syndicate had egg on their face. They had to explain what all these gangsters in the United States are suddenly doing on a farm in the southern tier of New York. Crosswell and his men eventually managed to round up 60 Mafia members, 
including New York leaders Profaci, Bonanno, Galanti, and Gambino. Far from Genovese's triumphant moment announcing his ascension, he had exposed them all to the authorities. Number one, a lot of mobsters throughout the country blamed uh, Vito Genovese because he had insisted on the meeting so he could, be, uh, he could get some esteem and uh, embarrassed everybody. As a direct result of Apollakin, a federal grand jury found 20 Mafia members guilty of conspiracy to commit perjury and to obstruct justice and imposed sentences between three and five years. This included the two would-be bosses, Genovese and Gambino. Eventually, these were overturned by the United States Court of Appeals on the basis of insufficient evidence. But the damage had been done. The FBI, who had been slow to acknowledge the depth of the Mafia, could no longer ignore it. Because here you had uh, this obvious convention of Italian or Sicilian-American uh, mobsters, and you couldn't dismiss it just as a casual meeting and the claim by all of them that they went to visit a sick friend. I mean, nobody could swallow that. Former assistant director at the FBI, Steve Pomerantz. I think the Appalachian organized crime meeting, the meeting of the bosses of America's organized crime in, in one location, uh, really brought home uh, to the American public and to the FBI the magnitude of this problem. Um, that we, we, they, they were so brazen, they were so bold and so powerful that they would actually have a meeting much as any large legitimate American corporation would meet to decide uh, internal issues, if you will, of their organization, their direction, what they wanted to do uh, in the way of a legitimate company would do. This, this really imprinted itself uh, on, the American, uh, on the American public and certainly on the FBI. Before, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had been reluctant to admit the existence of organized crime in America. He had even written, there was no such thing as organized crime or the mafia, and the claim that there was a national crime syndicate was baloney. Ronald Goldstock is a former mafia investigator. I think Appalachian was more important, not so much for the country, but for the FBI. Um, all of a sudden, everything that they had been saying, that there was no national organization, um, that crime was essentially local and it was for local law enforcement to deal with, um, became obviously incorrect. Um, and if there was a moment where it was absolutely patently clear that they had a role to do that they had not been performing, that was it. After Appalachian, however, the FBI were galvanized into action. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was instructed to target Vito Genovese in their fight against drugs. Never underestimate the menace that uh, Vito Genovese left with his, even with his departure. It was he who was so instrumental, one of the key players, in bringing in the scourge of heroin narcotics into America. Without him, it might never have occurred. He opened up these opportunities that the Mafia, with the assistance of the Sicilian Mafia, would use widespread distribution into the inner cities of America, the biggest cities, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, Pittsburgh. So what this did was he left a legacy we still have today. It was the beginning of narcotics corruption. Genovese was given 15 years in a federal prison. 
but he wouldn't give up his hard-won prize so easily. And so he continued to rule his organization unchallenged from his prison cell. His legacy still lives on. To this day, the most powerful mafia organization in America bears his name. The Genovese family continues to make millions from its criminal activities, and Genovese's protégés would rise to the top of the new mafia. Vito Genovese's most important legacy, something he left behind and caused a lot of trouble for American law enforcement, was a character by the name of Vincent, known as the Chin Gigante. Genovese mentored Gigante, taught him everything he probably knew. Chin Gigante was a top lieutenant to Vito. In fact, they were both convicted on the same crime, a narcotics crime. Gigante got a shorter sentence of about 10 years, and when he came out, he was one of the most important people, powerful figures, in what was now known as the Genovese family. And sooner, and sooner not later, Gigante became the top dog in the family, the godfather. Meanwhile, Frank Costello retired in peace before the Appalachian Conference. He spent the rest of his days gardening at his home, before he died of a heart attack. He was remembered fondly by those who knew him. Frank Costello was a rather pleasant looking person uh, and he never denied his background. He said, don't write my life, if you write my life, don't say I sold Bibles for a living. Uh, you know, but he thought he had gotten over that. He wanted to be respectable. But Genovese had exposed the mafia to the FBI. The Appalachian disaster would signal the beginning of their crackdown on organized crime in America. And Genovese's anger would bring one informant out into the light. Joseph Valachi, who would further the fall of the Mafia. People called them illegal. They weren't illegal as much as they were extra-legal. There were no laws that really governed wiretapping and all those sorts of things at, at, in that time. But they were extra-legal, and, and they couldn't be used as evidence. So there were a lot of those that went on. Uh, There's a, uh, a lot of material that was collected, again, about the, the, the structure and some of the activities. Uh, uh, in, in, I believe it was in the 1968, when Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, that we really got the, uh, the legal ability to conduct, under carefully controlled circumstances, court-ordered wiretaps, which we could use as evidence, not just for intelligence, but as evidence in criminal investigations. And we set out to do that. In the next episode... Joseph Volacci was a lowlife who always wanted to be part of the Mafia. And he got his chance when he left Sing Sing Prison. But far from becoming a notorious gangster, Volacci would become notorious for breaking the mob code. Flynn came in and he, he was tough. He told Volacci, listen, either you tell us what we want to know, or you're no value to us and there's no deal involved. And uh, Volacci realized he had to start talking. He was put into solitary confinement, gave him, the time, gave him the opportunity to think. So what's his only out? He's got to become a rat. So he sends word to the federal authority that he's willing to sing, become a canary. And giving the FBI all of their secrets. He uh, interpreted the hieroglyphics. He told them what it all meant, how the uh, organizations functioned, 
how there were families, how the makeup was, the whole structure, and they actually gave them names of the New York families for the first time, and who were the bosses, something they didn't know. They may have suspected things, but this was the inside information. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabingwa and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Audible and ParCast's Natural Disasters for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.